you would turn in your Bibles to John chapter 6, the Gospel of John, we continue in the sixth chapter of John's Gospel. Last week we looked at the fourth miraculous sign of our Lord that John records, the first seven main miraculous signs that John records in chapters 1 through 12 are often called the book of signs. We've been talking about that. The fourth sign, last week we looked at Jesus feeding the 5,000. And now this week we turn to the fifth miraculous sign that Jesus performs, and that is His walking on water. And so as we come now to God's Word, May we come with open minds and open hearts, ready to hear what the Lord will tell us. If you would hear now the word of the Lord, for the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. John chapter 6, beginning at verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing on it. Lord, your word is truth, and you have told us that your truth will set us free. We pray, Lord, that you would give us the truth of who the Lord Jesus Christ is and what he has done and how we are blessed by it, that we might worship him and serve him. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. How do we explain the troubles of life? Even more. Why is it that those who follow Jesus have troubles? If we truly believe and follow the all-powerful God, why do we face the storms of life? In this account of Jesus walking on water, John gives a much briefer version than Matthew or Mark. John wants us to see the trouble of the storm, but he doesn't want us to dwell on it. He wants us instead to see the Savior. That's the best place for us to look when we are in the middle of the storms of life around us. Jesus is in the storms with us and has promised to never leave us nor forsake us. And this is important for us to remember as we go through the circumstances of life. And so this morning in our text, as we see this miraculous sign of Jesus walking on water, we will come to understand why Jesus is doing it and what his purpose is in this event. 
I'd like to consider our text this morning under two main headings. Just a simple division. First, we see the storm. We see the storm that comes up upon the disciples and why that's significant. And then secondly, we see the Savior. We see Jesus intervening in the disciples' lives, coming to their aid and showing them yet once again who He is. The storm and the Savior. Well, let's begin then as we start our text in verse 16. And let's remind ourselves of the context of where we have been. Jesus has just fed the 5,000 men plus women and children. We looked at that last week, but there is very little period of time between verses 15 and verse 16. Perhaps minutes, perhaps an hour or two. It follows hard on the heels of Jesus feeding the 5,000. In that, Jesus showed the disciples that He is the one who meets their needs. But at the same time, the disciples had seen the reaction of the people to Jesus. They wanted to take Him by force, John tells us in verse 15, and to make Him king. And so as a result, Jesus withdrew to the mountain. This is not something that you often see. You don't hear of people being forced to be king. But that's what was on the people's minds. And they wanted to force Jesus to be king so that their needs would be met, so that he would serve them. That's the context of what we have. And so in withdrawing from the crowd, Jesus made it clear that his mission was not to meet the needs of those who were around him. So we come to verse 16. And John tells us, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. The day has ended, and evening has come. And so the disciples prepare to go back to Capernaum. Now, if you remember, they are on the Sea of Galilee, and I'll give you a brief geography lesson to help you understand this story better. The Sea of Galilee is a longish sea. It is longer north to south than east to west. And the disciples and Jesus right now are on the northeast corner of this lake, the Sea of Galilee. They are near the town of Bethsaida. They're in a desolate place, you'll remember, Mark, Luke, and Matthew call it. They're in a place where there's much grass, John tells us. And so they are going to set out on the boat back to where they came from, to Capernaum, which is on the northwest side of the lake. Now, this is important, and I want you to keep this in your mind, because it is not a very long journey by boat from Bethsaida to Capernaum. It's the shortest part of the lake. You may remember that the crowd followed Jesus around the, the periphery of that lake, and they actually beat him there at Bethsaida. So keep that in your mind. So they're going to go away from this desolate place to a place that is a base of operations, if you will, for Jesus' ministry. It's been a long day in which they traveled from Capernaum to Bethsaida and Jesus had spent a long time teaching. And then he had fed the entire crowd with his miracle. And now darkness is coming and they need to go back to Capernaum. 
we, I think, can understand that the crowd has dispersed to go back to the surrounding towns or other areas. And so this is a long journey at the end of a long day for them. I want you to imagine in your mind the time that you've taken a road trip for vacation. What's the easier part of that trip? Is it when you get up in the morning and you're going to travel to your vacation destination? Or is it after you've had a long day and you're headed back home in the dark? Of course it's the latter. So you can imagine the disciples are tired, they're weary, they're eager to get home and get in their own beds, if you will. Well, the darkness is coming here, so they get in the boat and they're ready to make this journey along the north of the Sea of Galilee. Now, this should not be a difficult trip. It's a short journey. And these are experienced fishermen. They know these waters. They know what they are doing. There's no difficulty here for them. This is well within their experience. You would not go wrong getting in a boat with Peter, James, and John and the others. Now, I have to tell you this. If your pastor ever says to you, please get on my boat with me and let's go out on the lake, you have my permission to say no. Because your pastor doesn't know anything about being on the lake. I'm not like the disciples. As a matter of fact, the last time that I've been out on the water, I think in a sailboat, my wife was pregnant with our second child, who's now married. And... We were out on the boat, and I'm just going to say that being out on a sailboat in crystal blue waters, only one of us got seasick. And it wasn't the pregnant lady. (laughs) And so, this is not the case here. You would be in very good hands with the disciples. This should be an easy trip. They should be ready to get home quickly. And that should affect the way we look at this situation. Have you ever experienced or faced a situation in life that you expected would be easy? That wouldn't take much effort to complete? That you didn't really think about it? You certainly weren't expecting help from anywhere because the task was so easy. Maybe you didn't even stop to think or pray about what's happening. It's like driving to work or running some errands. I would venture to say that many of us don't stop and consciously think to pray that the Lord would bring us safely from home to the office each and every day. Why? Is it because we don't trust God? No. Is it because we don't need God? No. It's because we assume we can handle that. It's not a big deal. That was, of course, their expectation here. But there's another important detail. It's not just that it was dark. And they're heading home. And, and darkness is bad. It's especially bad in the Gospel of John. You may remember we've already seen this. John gives us a picture of light and darkness. And he talks about our Lord Jesus as the light of the world who comes in and dispels the darkness. And the darkness will not overcome the light. So in John's Gospel, and we will see this again and again, the darkness is not just late at night. It means trouble and problems and even sin and wickedness. And you may notice here, and keep an eye out for the future, that when Jesus is away from the disciples, it's dark. Without Jesus, they have no light. 
So, but John also tells us here in verse 17 that they got into the boat and they were alone because Jesus had not yet come to them. So they are on their own. And this is another important fact for our story. And then John tells us in verse 18 that out of nowhere a storm comes. Now, we have to understand that John's version of these events is very tightly written. It's very terse. It's only six verses. Both Matthew and Mark deal with it at much greater length and give more detail. But here, verse 18 just sort of jumps out at us. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And I think that's intentional on John's part. This is not a matter of they're on the boat and James looks up and says, I don't like the looks of those clouds. And then they keep going and John says, you know, this wind does not seem good. And then the waves begin to slowly lap and Peter says, I don't know, we need to be careful about this boat. No, I think they're just out on the boat and the storm hits them. Now, the text I think says that, but this is also not a surprise. It's not unusual on this sea. The Sea of Galilee is actually, if you can believe it, below sea level. I know that sounds odd, a sea below sea level, but it just means that it is in a depression in the earth. And so even to this day, Weather will come down from the hills and the mountains into this depression and will whip up a violent storm very quickly. Fishermen then and fishermen now would be aware of this. And, and so they would not have been happy about this development, but it wouldn't have been unusual. It wouldn't have been the first time they experienced it. Mark tells us that as this storm comes on, they were making headway painfully. They're going very slow. If you were filming them, you would wonder if they're going forward at all or if this is stopgap motion. They're trying to just stay in place, get a little bit ahead, a little by little. Have you ever driven in bad traffic or in a storm and someone ahead of you decides the best way to go ahead is to drive five miles an hour? And you're like, I could get out of this car and walk faster than this? That's what they're experiencing here. They're going very, very slowly. You can almost picture what's happening. The wind begins to whip and the rain begins to come down and the waves begin to rise and crash against the boat, even in the boat. Peter is at the back, in the stern, holding the rudder. He's trying to keep the boat on target, on course. And you can imagine him looking out into the darkness, the foam from the sea has made his beard wet. The disciples are there wiping the water from their eyes as it splashes over them. And they're just making no progress at all. Now, in one sense, this is natural. It's the way of the sea. And these kinds of storms come up all the time. Now, why is that important? Because I think this storm is a picture of life. You see, we live in a fallen world. Storms of life are common in our life all the time. We know that there are times when troubles come on us unexpectedly. But even at that time, we know troubles are out there. We know we don't live in a perfect world. We expect difficulties and challenges. Life is hard and it's full of pain. Just think about your last week. 
or your last month? What challenges and troubles have you faced? I don't need to give you an illustration of that because you know that from your own life. Now, even here at Christ Church, one of our dear people was rushed to the hospital recently in unbelievable pain. And the doctors were unable for some period of time to find out what was causing this. And this was a significant issue and problem, not just for the pain, but for those of us that were praying for her, wondering what the cause was and was something worse going to happen. Another one of our young people fell and suffered a broken arm. And I know that family didn't plan their day to be in the emergency room in the middle of the night. These things just happen. Perhaps you faced trouble this week. Perhaps you have financial difficulties. Perhaps you faced relationship difficulties. We don't want trouble. And it may surprise us at the time when it comes. But we know that trouble is a part of this world. And that's important to realize because the world tries to tell you that life should be safe and that you should be in control of your life. That if you just work hard enough, nothing bad will happen. You can have control and keep all of hardships at bay. Think about the constant refrain of trying to find someone to blame when bad things happen. It's not just that bad things can happen. It's got to be somebody's fault. We've got to have someone to blame. And we even try in our culture to explain away death, to push it away. We do all that we can to push it out of our minds as if then it won't affect us. You would think, according to our culture, that no one died before 2020. The only reason anyone ever dies is because of a disease that we don't take appropriate precautions for. That other than that, everybody's been living forever. But you see, that's our culture. It's so afraid of death. It's so afraid of the reality of life because to acknowledge that is to admit that we live in a world cursed by sin. And that there is a God who is holy, who holds us accountable for sin. And that we must repent of sin. And our only hope is not in our circumstances or in our control, but in the one who shed his blood that we might be forgiven. The truth is that life is hard. The world is fallen and broken. Storms are always coming on us, and we don't have the control that we want. But that's not the only reason the disciples were in trouble. We miss what's going on here if all we see is an unlucky weather event. No. An important fact is revealed by Matthew. Jesus sent them onto the sea. He sent them into the storm. Matthew's very clear. He says that Jesus made them get into the boat. It's very direct language. And he made them go before him to the other side. So Jesus, this is no accident. Jesus has told them, get in the boat and go and go without me. And Jesus knows the storm is out there. Do you remember that John told us Jesus had not yet come to them? Now, when you read that, do you think that they struck out on their own? That maybe Nathaniel or Philip was getting a little bit antsy. And he said, you know, 
Jesus told us he'd be back by now. We can't wait here all day. Let's, let's just get in the boat and take off and we'll prepare the evening and we'll wait for Jesus to join us back at Capernaum. Is that maybe your thought when Jesus wasn't with them? Did it sound like disobedience? Because that would make sense. After all, we expect someone to have trouble because they're outside of God's will, right? They, if they take the initiative outside of Jesus, apart from Jesus, we would expect them to run into a problem. Except they hadn't. Jesus had sent them off and they had obeyed Jesus. They're in trouble because they obeyed Jesus. They're in trouble because Jesus wanted them to be in trouble. Now that sounds odd, doesn't it? It almost sounds wrong. Why would Jesus want anything but the best for his disciples? Don't problems only come when we disobey, not when we obey? Obviously not. Jesus is very intentional here. He was sending them into the storm without him for a purpose. Now, why would Jesus do that? I think first to remind them that the world is a dangerous place. We need to be reminded of that. That the world is a place that's dangerous, where there are troubles around us, and we are not in control. And then, the second thing that follows from that is, Jesus wants to test their faith in Him. He wants to see or rather to give them an opportunity to trust him, to trust him in the middle of trouble. Now, we know from the scriptures that on some level it worked, because Peter, that same man that was in the boat, years later when he wrote the first letter to the church, he told the church and you and me that we should not be surprised by trials that come. 1 Peter 1, 7. That we should expect them. That this is what comes to us in life, to the followers of Jesus. Trials show our need for grace. And they test our faith. One of my favorite writers and Christian theologians, J.C. Ryle, the evangelical bishop from England, puts it this way. Trial is a part of the diet which all true Christians must expect. It is one of the means by which their grace is proved and by which they find out what there is in themselves. James puts it another way. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various times. Don't just bear with them, James says. Count it all joy. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The troubles that we have can be designed for us by Jesus. Not as a discipline. Notice that it was their obedience that took them into the storm. We might assume that troubles only come when we disobey the Lord. But the storms of life are not always discipline from God. Don't assume that when you have trials that you're out of God's will and when you get back in the will of God, the trials will disappear. 
No, sometimes God sends us troubles so that we might grow in Christ. One commentator puts it this way. Moses would never have felt rejected by a complaining people if at the burning bush he had decided not to obey Jehovah. Daniel would never have had to face a lion's den if he had not decided to be faithful to God first. Just think of how much persecution Paul would have avoided if he just stayed in Tarsus. But then, these great men would never have known the refreshing winds of the Holy Spirit flowing through their lives. So what was the reaction of the disciples in the midst of this trouble? Do you see it? They kept rowing. They continued on in obedience. They didn't give up. They didn't despair. They didn't say, we should have never listened to Jesus. John is very vivid here. He said they rode against the wind with the waves crashing on them for three or four miles in verse 19. And yet, Matthew tells us, they were still a long way from land. Again, they're not making much progress, but they're obedient to our Lord's command. They did not turn back. They did not give up. Why? Because Jesus had sent them. They were obeying the Lord. This should be an encouragement to you in the midst of troubles. Don't let them take you away from Jesus. Keep obeying his word. Keep doing what he's told you to do. Well, we might ask, with the disciples out on the sea, where is Jesus? And John is going to show us the Savior. You can imagine them rowing against the wind, wondering if the boat is going to capsize, asking, why did Jesus send us out? Why isn't he here? Did he forget about us? Now, it's the same with us, isn't it? When we're lying in the hospital bed, or when we're short of money, or when we're in a conflict with someone else, where is Jesus? Why isn't he helping me now? But Jesus was not truly absent. Remember, John told us in verse 15 that Jesus was on the mountain. And Mark makes explicit what John says implicitly here. Mark tells us in chapter 6, verse 48, that Jesus was watching them. Just because they could not see Jesus didn't mean he couldn't see them. Just because they were in trouble did not mean Jesus had left them to face danger alone. And you see, this is often our default view. We judge Jesus' faithfulness and his presence by our circumstances. As if he exists to make our lives smooth. But he doesn't. He lets us experience trials, but he never lets go. And we see this as Jesus comes with help in verse 19. They saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. Now, Jesus doesn't just see them from afar. He's not just observing. No, he comes to them in the midst of the storm. We might be reminded of another story in the scriptures, not dealing with water, but when dealing with fire. 
and how Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego were not saved from the fiery furnace. They were cast into the fiery furnace. And when they looked into the furnace, what did they see? Four men, not three. Our Lord was with them in the trial, in the fire. We also need to remember here that the storm can't stop Jesus. The disciples are moderately helpless against the storm. They can't get forward. They're rowing with all their might. They can't make progress. But the storm can't stop Jesus. Jesus follows right along in the path in which they've gone. This is yet another miracle. It's not a trick. It's not a marvel. There's a reason why (coughs) Jesus walks on water. It's to come to his disciples. It's not something that happens in a vacuum. And it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus acts this way. Jesus knows what trouble is like. He became a man and lived among us. This is an example of the meaning of Christmas. Jesus was born so that he would enter into our troubles and he would deliver us from them. Now, Jesus comes later than they expected, but at the right time. Matthew gives us another small detail. He says that Jesus came in the fourth watch of the night. Now, for those of you that don't have Roman timepieces, I'll translate that for you. That is sometime after 3 o'clock in the morning. Now, you can imagine the disciples are in a boat on the sea, and they've been rowing for hours. And it seems like they're getting no closer. And they don't know what to do. And the darkness has gotten even darker. And the storm has whipped up even more. The disciples would have wanted to avoid all this trouble, all this pain, all this effort. If you had asked the disciples, they would have wanted Jesus right away. And after all, isn't that what we want? Jesus to be on our schedule, to do what we want, when we want it. But Jesus instead comes with help just when we need it. Or Jesus often doesn't even come with the kind of help that we think we need. So sometimes Jesus doesn't come to deliver us from a situation... Sometimes the help that Jesus brings is endurance to help us make our way through the situation. That's an important point. He doesn't just deliver us. Often he gives us endurance. So Jesus comes in the middle of the night. He walks on the water to them. And there's another interesting thing about what John describes at the very end of verse 19. He says, they were frightened. We might even say terrified. Now, we would expect, and and I think it's true, that they would be frightened by the storm. Even as experienced fishermen, this was a big storm in the middle of the night, and Jesus wasn't there, and they're not making progress. You could see their level of concern rising hour by hour by hour. Now, you can imagine the longer they rode, and the less progress they made, the more fearful they became. So why is it that John mentions fear here? Do you see that? He doesn't mention their fear when he's talking about the storm. 
or when he's talking about them rowing. They're afraid when they see Jesus. And I think it's because they didn't expect Jesus to come in this way, to help in this way. He should never have been able to walk on water. No one walks on water. Now, I know there are fool of a commentators that will tell you things like, well, actually, Jesus was able to spy out a sandbar in the middle of the lake. And he walked along the sandbar to get to them. And of course, the sandbar didn't stop the boat. And the experienced fishermen didn't know about the sandbar. But Jesus, in the middle of the dark, just happened to find dry land to take him out into the middle of the lake. Because remember, this is not on the shore. John's clear. They're They're out for hours. Matthew's clear. They're a long way from shore. This is not a couple of rocks that Jesus is jumping from one to the other. And so, what they thought was that this was a ghost, Matthew and Mark tell us. A spirit. They think things are going from worse to even worse. They're not getting better. They're now stuck. And now here's this apparition, this demon. They don't know who it is because people don't walk on water. It can't be Jesus because Jesus would be bound by the same restrictions they would be, they must be thinking. And then Jesus comes to them and he shows them who he is. Do you see what his very first words are in verse 20? It is I. Now, you may not know it, but this is a very, very famous phrase in the Bible. In Greek, here's your Greek lesson for the day. It's an easy one. It's ego, me. Ego, like having an ego. I. Translated, it means I am. The translation here is it is I. But this is the exact same Greek phrase, two words, that are used to translate Exodus chapter 3, when Moses says to the Lord, Who shall I say has sent me? And God says, I am who I am. Or in the Greek, ego me." That's what Jesus says. Now, this is not the last time we're going to see this. Because Jesus will say this over and over again. I am. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is making a divine declaration. And now it makes sense. That's why he can walk on water. He's the creator. He's the great I am. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a miracle worker. He's not just one who gives greater miracles than Elijah or Elisha. He's God himself. And so this is significant to them because now they know it's Jesus and they know they're safe. They know he's come to rescue them. He's their savior. Over and over again, Jesus uses these words to describe himself, to make sure we remember and understand who he is. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a helper for us in time of need. He is the great I am. The Lord God. And the Lord God is the all-powerful, all-knowing, and unknowable creator and sustainer of all things. I think John had in his mind, when he wrote this, a psalm. Psalm 107, beginning at verse 23, we read this. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. 
They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. Sound familiar? They mounted up to heaven, that is the waves. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in the evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love for his wondrous works to the children of man. That's describing our Lord here as the Savior and helper of his people. Because you see, even though God is unknowable, he is made known in Christ. That's why Jesus took on flesh. That's why he was born. John told us this way back in chapter 1. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Jesus makes God known to us. And what are the next words that Jesus gives? Do not be afraid. In the middle of trouble and fear, It's Jesus who lets the disciples know that they can trust him and that they're safe in him. Jesus tells you this today, too, in the midst of your troubles. You could trust him. Paul reminds us of this very thing in Romans chapter 8. He says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's the Savior. Do you see what John wants you to see this morning? He puts before you a portrait of Jesus. Very man and very God. Jesus, who comes to us in the middle of our troubles. Jesus, who watches over his people. He is the glorious Savior and is worthy of your faith and trust. If you don't know Jesus by faith today, then John calls on you to believe in him. You will face trouble in life. This world is marked By sin. But even more, you are marked by sin. Your hope is not in yourself and in your ability to row against the wind and waves of life. Your hope is in the one who sees you and who comes to rescue you and who says, Do not be afraid. It is I. When Jesus got into the boat, it immediately made it to land. John doesn't tell us exactly how that worked. But I do know that when you believe in Jesus and how he lived and died to take away sin, you immediately are brought safe to shore. Will you trust him now? What are you waiting for? Jesus is the Savior you need. Let's pray.